You are now listening to the Gun Dog Notebook Podcast, hosted by Darrell Smith, with Paulus Ruger and Honeymoon in Vegas. Business. This is Gundog Notebook Podcast. This is your host, Darrell Smith, and I'm glad to be back on here with you guys with a very special guest, uh, Paul Cook from Alder Fort English Centers. You guys are going to really enjoy this conversation. This one was a great one. Um, just as a, a uh, an aside, I just have an a, a addiction at looking at uh, Alder Fort English Centers content on Instagram, I spend a lot of my time and a lot of my, um, I guess the, these uh, screen time hours that iPhones and stuff are starting to track, yeah, that's definitely uh, due to the fact that I spent so much time scrolling through all the four English setters, um, you know, information and the website and the Instagram, but I don't want to blow it for you. I don't want to spoil it because Paul is just a phenomenal guy. Before we get to it, of course, you know I got to do my usual thank yous, okay? Um, Project Upland, I want you guys to go check out the AYA film In Our Veins, okay? Guys, I hope that video made you want to go get yourself a Spanish double gun. Go get one. Just convince your wife to spend the money. It's fine. Actually, um... Contrary to popular belief, they are not terribly steep in progress in, uh, in 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 price. So you can definitely find an AYA shotgun on the market for at least about three to four thousand um, dollars. So that's actually going to be my next goal as far as getting another shotgun. That may be a little bit down the road, but it's got to happen. Okay, it's got to happen. I think I want to get it at sixteen gauge too. Um, also, if you guys are not aware, Northwoods Collective, which is kind of like the parent company of Project Upland, is also um, got some more components. Morning Thunder, okay? It's it, for, for all you turkey hunting guys, and I just went turkey hunting yesterday. Shout out to my buddy Jacob Mullis, all right, who took me on my first uh, turkey hunt, and it was awesome. Um, that gobbler sounded like he was like sitting right next to me. I didn't get anything. The... Uh, turkey didn't want to commit from what it was looking like but I mean there were birds running there was uh you know sounds made in the woods and I got a really good experience also I think the turkey guys were looking out for me because today a um a family friend of mine actually reached out and he had shot two turkeys um on his property and there were two males two very large ones and he just wanted me to have them um, you know, I give him a little bit of the meat and stuff like that. He told me just whatever I feel like, you know, processing for him. So, though I didn't get anything with Jacob, I definitely got turkey. Two whole big old, big old male turkeys. One Jake, and it was looking like I, maybe the other one was Jake too. But, um, probably leaning towards being a Tom, I guess. I'm new to this whole turkey thing. But anyway... Um, I had a great time out with Jacob Mullis, and I want to just kind of start pushing my interests 
you know, in the off season of dog training into turkey hunting. It was definitely a blast. Um, and I had a lot of fun. I learned a ton. So that was really cool. Also with Project Upland and Morning Thunder, the other component is endless migration for you duck hunters out there, all right? For you guys like me that's got a Labrador, got a duck dog, a Chesapeake Bay Retriever, whatever you got, go check out Endless Migration. All of this is under Northwoods Collective. There will be films coming up. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, I think Jake Terry, photographer and just an amazing dude, I think he's over Endless Migration. Um, you know, I'm gonna triple check that, but I'm pretty sure that's 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 what it is. That's correct. So anywho, um, Endless Migration, go check that out. Go check out Morning Thunder. Go check out Project Upland. Just check out the whole of Northwoods Collective. Those are my buddies, all right? I um, also want to thank Dakota 283 Kennels. So in the process of getting this season going, all right, in the process of getting this season going and planning for the 2019-2020 season, well, Mr. Greg Cronkite, who is the founder, of, of course, of Dakota 283 Kennels, we had him on the podcast too, um, definitely shot me a text recently and, uh, you know, asked if I wanted to come up and, and, and do some hunting on Cronkite Farms. So, of course, I said yes. It's going to be one of those uh, longer out-of-state out of hunts because I got this little baby girl coming, so I got to plan my season strategically. So, getting up there with Greg Cronkite, I'm thinking I'm getting up there with Nick Larson, too. Um, from what I understand, we're supposed to be going up there. I hope Tyler Webster shows up, too. I think that was uh, on the books. So, my fingers crossed to meet um, Nick Larson and, and Tyler Webster in person. But anywho, I'm ranting. Um, I'm supposed to be getting up with uh, Greg Cronkite at Cronkite Farms, Dakota 283 folks, and hunting up there this fall, this winter time. And also, in light of all of that, I still want to encourage you guys to go to Dakota283Kennels.com, go get yourself a G3 kennel. I'm gonna push G3, okay? Keep doing it. There's a host of other content um, and other, you know, accessories, things to watch your dogs, all kinds of stuff on Dakota283.com. Um, so for those of you folks that need a kennel and ain't got one, go check it out. Lion Country Supply, I want to thank them for being the premier dog supply company in this Upland Bird Dog game. Um, water, waterfowl, all of that stuff. So Eric Munden, the folks at Lion Country Supply are always just pushing the bar and setting the bar higher. Thank you so much. Okay, and Orvis, I want to check that out. Like, guys, my article, A Good Season Pass, is on the Orvis Hunting and Shooting blog. Go check that out for me, all right? And, um, you know, go uh, go go read some more stuff. Reed Ryan's got a couple of articles on there. I think there's a couple more writers on there as well. I'm not the only one. So, with all that being said, guys, this is going to be a good episode, Okay. This is definitely one for the books, and I truly enjoyed Paul, and we are making plans for me to get up to Wisconsin in fall of 2020. All right, stay tuned. Welcome back to another episode, another awesome episode of the Gundog Notebook Podcast. Here we go.
Boom. Okay. Guys, 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 guys. We are on the line with Mr. Paul Cook of Alder Fork English Setters. This is a gentleman that I just have the utmost respect for, and I followed his profile on Instagram and, and heard you um, heard him connected to Nick Larson and Project Upland and just so many great things going on. Um, I just want to say, first of all, Paul, before we even get started, I can't tell you how excited I am to record with you. Oh, awesome, man. You know, I, I just have to thank you for having me on. That's really all I can say. We got, When we first talked on the phone, you know, it seemed like we could have talked all night. Yeah, we so. probably could have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I appreciate being on your podcast. I've been enjoying your podcast quite a bit. So well, I I can't thank you enough for that. So let's let's go ahead and break the ice, man. Let's let's talk about this past weekend that you had. Before we even get into your background, I really want to hear about the 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 good, the bad, the awesome that came from that field trial that you just left from. Let's go ahead and break the uh, ice. Okay. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a member of AFTCA, which is Amateur Field Trial Clubs of America. And um, so this was a regional amateur walking shooting dog championship. Okay. And it's the region that I'm in. I think it's four or five states. It's Wisconsin, Minnesota. I think it's North and South Dakota. This country split up into different regions. And so ours is region 19. And um, the I'm a member of the Minnesota Grouse Dog Association. We hosted this championship. Mm-hmm. And so um, I entered. I had one dog I entered. So you have to have a qualifying amateur placement in order to enter your dog. Right. So I, I had a I had a placement on a dog like two years ago, I think. As a two-year-old, I put a placement on her. So I entered one dog, and um, she did okay. She had a decent run, and she pointed one wild bird. Um I think she had one unproductive point. So, you know, sometimes that, that can detract from your showing your dog a little bit. But um, I was overall, I was really happy with her. Uh, the winning dog pointed three grouse in, it, in its hour, in one hour. Wow. Um, yeah. And there's a guy I know, a really good amateur named Bill Fromm. Okay. His dog, yeah, his dog won. And then Ryan Huff, who's also a club member, his dog got runner up. Uh, center that he owns got runner up and she had a nice woodcock find right at the end of her hour so um so i think we you know we kind of knocked on the door a little bit (laughs) i hope we did anyway but um you know we made it competitive but we didn't quite get into ribbons this time but that's okay it was a really fun trial that club always puts on a real great trial um if for people who've never been to a grouse trial it's uh I'll just say it's not the best spectator sport all 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 the time, uh-huh. uh, because you're in, you're in you know you're in thick thick woods some of the time and you can't always see the dog or um, you're basically on a course through the woods that's sort of ribboned through the woods and um, it's close to two and a half miles. Okay. Uh, yeah, so you can run, so you have enough space to run the dog. You got the leg you know, room. Yeah, so it's a lot of hiking through the woods. You hike, you know, you're slogging through the swamp, and you're, it's, you know, it's uh, but we we love it, <laughs> right? We right. Because because we love it, and it's all wild birds, and it's multiple courses, so they don't use the same course 
twice in a day. Okay. So you so the idea is that you try and give everybody a somewhat equal chance of getting into wild birds. They have a fresh course to run every day. Mm-hmm. So um, so we did okay, and we had a great trial. Um, and the dogs that deserve to win won. Okay. You know. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Look, yeah. the words from a true gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. The thing you learn early on about field trialing is that if you go, you know, I go there because I want to win, right? Right. I, I, you know, so I'm, a, I'm a bird hunter too, right? But part of what I do with my dogs is that I show up and say, well, I think I have a good dog and I think it can win, you right. know? Right. So um, that's not everybody's game, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely into into the field trialing bit. So one thing you learn early on is if you expect to go there and win every time you'll be disappointed. Right? <laughs> um, right. And some, and sometimes your dog deserved to win and it didn't. And sometimes your dog didn't deserve to win and it did. Right. And right. I've seen, and I've seen all that happen too. Okay. So, you know, um, it's judged and, and the judges, you know, uh, we wouldn't have this type of trials that I run in without good judges and I we had great judges probably some of the best judges you could have for this this championship that I just ran in so okay um, Franklin Franklin Asa and Scott Jordan who actually they're both from Minnesota right I've heard, now I've heard of Franklin Asa before yep yep and and Scott Jordan just actually ran one of his pointers at the national championship at Ames he's I think he's gotten him qualified three or four times to even Wow. Okay. You know, those are those are serious dog men. So when I see you know, people like that judging, I I can't I can't enter my dog fast enough. Right. <laughs> those well, are great it, judges. And you want that. Um and I actually do, I know this is kind of a sidebar, but you know, you've been doing this for a while and Frank Lanasa, I mean, you can't hear his name enough. Um, I'm gonna go look for Scott Jordan. I've been to Ames. I I I, I fell in love with the history behind Ames and all of that stuff. So I really want to ask you as a field trialer, what do you think makes a good judge? Like what gets you excited to see guys like Frank out there? Well, I mean, you know, guys like that, they just have so much experience. They, they've seen so many dogs. They've, they've they've owned so many dogs. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when, (laughs) <laughs> it takes a lot to get a dog qualified to run in the national championship. So right. a guy like Scott Jordan has worked at it and probably gone through. Well, the other thing people don't realize is as field trialers, sometimes we look at more than a few dogs to get the one we're winning with. Right, right, right. You know, and it's it's a, it's a little different if you have one hunting dog at home, which is, which is great. You know, I hope everybody has a hunting dog at home, but... You know, you—that's kind of your dog. Mm-hmm. You know? But but sometimes these field trailers will go through a few dogs and, and find one that has what it takes. You know, right. and that you know they 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 have to pass on a few to get the good ones sometimes. Yeah, and so, that's I mean, and yeah, that's part of the game. It you know I hope that nobody doesn't sound insensitive, but you know it, you you got to put in the time and work, and you have if you go by sheer numbers, you'll come out with something. Yeah. Yeah, and so you know what makes a good judge? I, I'm not always sure, but these guys for sure. You know, <laughs> I know yeah. that they make good judges, and it's it's for me. It's like just based on their tons and tons of experience they have, and um, you know, way more than me. Right. Um, and uh, just seeing a lot of different dogs. Right. Right. 
Well, I and winning and winning, they both won a lot. Right. Well, the number and no again, <laughs> having the numbers of of wins in and of itself speaks volumes. I mean, you know, we um we actually got and we'll get into it later, but we you and I spoke a bit about folks like Neil right down here. Yes. And yes. at the end of the day, I mean, they're good, they're great dog trainers, but they win. Oh, yeah. You know, and when, when you're getting into the field trial game, and I'm definitely getting into it myself and, and very new to it, but when you're getting into this game, you gotta, you, you really have to have that winner's mentality. Now, the expectation of win is totally different than having a winner's mentality, if, you know, correct me if right. I'm wrong. I, 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 no, I tend to agree. Like, like I say, I, I go there because I want to win. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, and I tell people that are new to field trailers, you should do the same thing. But, um, you know, don't get discouraged when you don't. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Because right. The, sometimes the learning curve is pretty steep. And sometimes people are at their second trial and they get the blue ribbon. You know, that happens too. But, um, right. you know, people get blessed with the, with the talented dog. And mm-hmm. even if they're inexperienced, um, that happens too. But, you know, it's it's something you really got to love if you stick with it, I think. Mm-hmm. Um Especially in the grouse woods, I said to my uh, my wife who was there last weekend, and I said to her, um, you know, we're standing and kind of standing around on the side of the road in the rain for a long time. You know, mm-hmm. you sort of wait your wait your turn. You know, mm-hmm. um, and I walked I walked quite a few of the braces too. But I said, you know, you got to love this to be out here. You really got to love it. Right, right. You, <laughs> you do, know? and we do. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I I also love the fact that you your wife is such an integral part of um you know of your career so you know with her having so much of an influence on you you guys work horses together and all of that stuff i just want it to be known you know on the podcast that you know us crazy hunter guys we have wives that (laughs) definitely make the experience like my wife has done so many things for me as well (laughs) oh yes absolutely yeah yeah yes I mean, especially like, I mean, everything, but Katie helps me with the pups when we raid litters and, um, you know, we, we, we have this back, uh, kind of a partially finished back room in, in our garage, you know, where we whelp puppies and we sleep back there with them mm-hmm. and, um, you know, we take turns taking care of them. Right. And, um, so it's, it's all, it's both of us, you know, it's all of us. Right. Uh, it's, it's an effort by both of us for sure. And, and when I can't take care of the dogs, she takes care of them. So, um, and she, she hunts with me. Everybody says, wow, you know, your, your wife hunt, bird hunts with you. But when we go around the country and bird hunt, she hunts with me too. And, um, I, w- I don't know. I wouldn't have it any other way. Nah, hey, that is, that is just the greatest thing in the world. Um, you know, my yeah, it's wife, a blessing. it re- really yeah. is. It, yeah. it really is. And, um, you know, my wife does so much. She doesn't hunt, per se. She just doesn't want to shoot anything. But she's definitely, you know, putting in the miles and hiking with me. I will say that. The days, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, the days that I can't get up and, you know, let dogs out for whatever reason or being lazy or just have something to do that day, she's at home, yep. you know, doing the same thing. And I, I, I always tell people... I would put money on the fact that my wife has watched me work this dog enough. <laughs> She's probably better than I am at it. <laughs> oh, you know, some days I wonder the same things. So. Right, right. <laughs> there's plenty. There's plenty. There's plenty of times where Katie will point something out to me that I'm not seeing. So uh-huh. you know, 
Mm-hmm. That's um, she. She she's always been around animals. She was raised on a farm, so um, she knows animals. She's intuitive about animals, and she's she takes such good care of them. So. Nice, nice. Well, you got yeah. yourself some gold right there, Mister Cook. Absolutely. Well, when you come up grouse hunting, you'll get you know you'll find out what what it's like, right? Uh, hey, that's what it is, and we we definitely have that in the books. Um, fall 2020 is the year I need to get this puppy right and now you're talking see I knew if I got it on the podcast <laughs> right that would be it then right you, you, now you gotta come up now I have to I have to yep. you know stick to my word and everything so we're gonna go ahead and make you know I'm a buggy now you don't got a friend I tell folks you, you, when you stuck with me you stuck with me absolutely it's, I'm in it's, um, I'm in we are we are fall twenty twenty. Let it be known on the air <laughs> within the first yes. thirteen minutes of the podcast. <laughs> exactly. Yep. I knew I had to get that out there so I could hold you to it. Oh man, I'm here for it, man. I'm here. So you know, let's let's get down to the nitty gritty, man. Let's talk about your background and where you're from, your hunting history, earliest memory. Get give it to us all. Okay, um, yeah, so I grew up in Wisconsin, in southern Wisconsin, in a city of Janesville, which, okay. when I was a, when I was a kid, it's like a city of 60,000 people, right, so. Wow. Yeah, when I was a kid, I really didn't like living there at all. <laughs> you know, uh, kind of the suburbs, and, um, but I was lucky that my, my father had grown up on a farm, and my parents were from a, um, near a small town called Mauston, Wisconsin, which is kind of in the central part of the state. Mm-hmm. And so my grandparents were still there on the farm that my dad grew up on when I was a kid. So we would go there almost every, it was like the, maybe a two-hour drive or something. So we would go there almost every weekend. Right. So, so I, you know, that's kind of where I got... I learned about the outdoors and, um, uh, you know, I was probably, I'm sure I was following my dad around in the woods when he had, was carrying a shotgun to, to shoot a grouse, mm-hmm. even, even without a dog, you know, mm-hmm. as, as early as I can remember, I was, I was pretty little. We always cut firewood and, um, uh, on some land that my dad actually still owns up there. So, um, you know, my dad would when I was a kid he taught me what all the names of the trees were I, I can remember when I was really young. yeah and and part of the reason for that is because his dad my grandfather was a sawyer and okay. he sawed lumber yeah and he actually made all the he sawed all the white pine um, actual two by fours that he built this house out of he sawed them all so oh. he so he was real good and they knew all the you know they they were connected to the outdoors in that way. And so my dad knew all the tree names. So, you know, when I was a little kid, I knew the difference from a, a shag bark hickory from a red maple and a white oak, you know, and I just knew those things at an early age. So I, I think because of that, I really credit my, my family, my dad, and my grandfather, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. as well for connecting me and giving me like this, um, what little did they know probably right? right but getting me interested in conservation really mm-hmm. because i was because i i knew something about the land a little bit of something about the land you know and so i i would say um and this is this is a quote from someone famous i'm probably stealing i think but you know we we conserve that which we care about right, right? I, and that's true so, that's totally true and and we care and we care about that which we know about yes sir Yes, sir. So you know that that's kind of where it comes from for me. My my dad taught me about the land when I 
was really young and um, got and I followed him around hunting. Um, I remember him grouse hunting in the woods, um, and we didn't have a dog, but he grew up pheasant hunting on the farm where he grew up. So um, at some point, as I got a little older, you know, old enough to go to hunter safety and carry a shotgun and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I started begging my father for a, for a bird dog. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, hey, I mean you... li- literally begging him, you know, it was ridiculous. I'm sure. Okay. Okay. You started off with the right, with the, uh, you started off right. <laughs> yeah. You know, he would tell me stories when he was a kid, um, about stories about him pheasant hunting. And, um, they, and even when I, you know, years later, they still had pheasants around the farm where he grew up there. So mm-hmm. I had just bugged him and bugged him and bugged him. And that's what I wanted to do. Wow. hunt birds with a dog you know so, now now what were the pheasant numbers like around there pretty good numbers so when i was a kid you know you had to work for a couple of roosters you know you really had to work for them mm-hmm. when i was when i was little and just before we had gotten a dog but i think i was about 15 years old or so and my dad got me a german short hair pup okay and, and he actually had a, con- a connection with a guy he worked with at General Motors. He worked at the General Motors plant there. And the guy's name was David Hill. And some some short hair people will recognize the name Hillhaven Kennels. Hillhaven Kennels. Hillhaven, yeah. Hillhaven was, you know, the, um, I, I don't know if they're breeding as much anymore, but he, um, David Hill judged a lot of short hair trials and um, ran short hairs in trials for many, many years and bred them many years so we got a puppy from his kennel and i think we just lucked out because by you know my he was a friend of my dad's from work so we didn't know where to look for a bird you know we didn't really know anything about it uh, my my dad had sort of hunted with um you know mixed breed farm dogs when he was a kid right you know but we didn't we didn't know anything about it and so we got this puppy and about the time we got this puppy they started doing um well, they would actually release pheasants on private lands around. And, you know, they were, they get, the first weekend or so of the season, they were kind of like ditch parrots. You know? Right, right. But they, they, they got shot up after a couple of days, and they got to be pretty wild. Um, and there was still a mix of wild roosters around there. And believe it or not, there was a rare covey of bob whites we'd even come across. Huh. So... That's basically when I was about 12 or 13, and that's basically where I started. You know, my dad bought me that bird dog, that short hair puppy. Um, we called her Britta, and um, we turned her loose. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and eventually she started pointing birds. You know, we didn't know anything how to train her. Um, but I'll tell you what, I'll never forget going to David Hill's kennel. And he, 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 sh- he was just going to show us one of his dogs. So he went over to a kennel, and he opened it up, and this I don't know, big strapping short hair male must have been about 65 pounds comes out and he, David had dizzied a pigeon and put it in the grass and this big short hair came out and just stuck that pigeon and walked up with a little single shot hammer gun and flushed it and shot the pigeon and it dropped and the dog never moved a muscle. Oh, wow. And, it, and he sent him on and he went out and picked it up and brought it back to his hand and healed by his side and I, you know, I was 12 or 13 years old, and I thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my, you know, I'll never see anything that cool again. Well, <laughs> you know? I was about to say, that would have blown my mind at 12 and 13 years old. Yeah, I can understand yes. that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, I think 
somewhere around there, I was probably hooked. <laughs> and then, but then I was lucky enough years to hunt with this little short hair pup, and you know she turned out to be a really good dog. Yeah. So um, that's kind of where it all got started, I guess. You know, I'm one of the fortunate ones, you might say. I had a family history of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've been doing it for a while. I was lucky that my dad was um, was a legacy from my dad and my my uh, uncles. And right. So let me let me ask you this, and I just really want to kind of poke your brain with this one again. Another one of those off-ended questions. Um, I hear every so often you'll hear the the old school bird dog trainers say like, oh, you know, the dog's got so much drive and the dog's got so much natural ability that a kid could train it. Do you think there's any kind of merit to that statement? Well, I think it boils down to how, how long you're willing to wait. Okay. Okay. <laughs> what, I, what, I, what I mean by that is, Somebody who knew what they were doing with that short hair puppy probably would have had her all tuned up at about two years old or something, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or some young, some young age, she probably would have been fairly finished. Because we didn't know anything, but because we have exposure to birds that she could go and find and point, um, right. we, she she worked out to be a pretty darn good dog. But I think she was probably four, four or five before we, you know, right. Um, before we really realized it, you right. know what I mean. Right. So I think yeah, there's definitely done. She had she had a lot of natural ability. She had a great nose. Um, you know, I, I have a story I tell about her. Most people I don't even think they believe. Oh, I was going to ask you what. Give me a story about Brenda. That was my next question. <laughs> well, you know, I think I think she just had a really really good nose. And so, um, you know, we'd watch her. She'd track a running rooster pretty well. And, a lot of times she'd get it pinned and she'd give us a wing shoot, wing shooting opportunity. But we had this uh, right next to the farm. My dad grew up. There was this uh, stream that ran through called Seven Mile Creek. Mm-hmm. And so when we were kids, we'd fish and catch suckers and little chubs and stuff out of there. And uh, there was, when we bird hunted pheasants, we'd sometimes hunt pheasants along there was a weedy edge, you know, sort of a riparian area along the stream corridor that was weedy and the pheasants would hang out in there. But we particularly would take two steel shot shells and slide those in the gun as soon as we got out of the truck mm-hmm. and, and, and go over it because there was a beaver dam and there was usually wood ducks there. Right. So, so we, you know, and you would have to have the steel shot. So we'd put a couple of steel shot shells in and we'd, we'd kind of go over, see if we could jump shoot some wood ducks first. And so one day we went over there and we were doing that and we, we had the dog and we turned the dog loose. Well, she pointed a bird over there. It hmm. pointed in the grass. And so we flushed and a rooster got up. I think my dad actually shot it. He's a much better shot than me. Yeah. Uh, I think my, yeah, I think my dad actually dropped the bird. And it went down, in the, and we went and searched for the bird. We couldn't find it. And so the dog searched and searched, and we walked all over. We thought the bird went down, and um, just no luck at all. Uh, pretty soon the dog is, we don't see the dog, and where is the dog? And she's down right at the edge of the creek on point. Huh. Like looking at the stream on point. So we walk over there and look around and look around, and that rooster pheasant is underwater. Are you right s- underwater in the in the stream? Now I don't know if he fell there, you know. Yeah. If he got, win- if he got winged and ran up, no, I don't know. But the dog, the bird was in the water. 
the bird was in the water and the dog was pointing it. Um, you know, I'm not saying she can underwater, you know, but um, whatever scent that she caught there from the bird dropping there, or, right. I think the bird tried to run. And it, I think it was it, because we it wasn't fully dead when we picked it up. Right. Well, I am, you know, so I'm going to take you up on that story because it actually makes a lot of sense, especially for a pheasant. I've got a similar story for you. Okay. okay. So out at a tower shoot. Okay. Because um, we don't have wild pheasants or anything like that here. So there's a tower shoot. Well, I'm yep. backing one day and, um, Pheasant gets shot and hits the ground and runs off, right? Runs off into um, a creek, same thing. And I send my lab after it. And by this point, it runs so far back that I now can't see my dog. And there's no way for me to get through the brush to the creek. It just, it was not easy to penetrate. Right. So... The bird, it seems like, I swear, because there was no reason for this bird to be in the water for just, I think the bird tried to swim across the water. I swear, because I heard my dog. Trying to make an escape of some kind. Of of some kind. I really think the the bird got into the water because my dog got to kicking around and it sounded like a Royal Rumble match. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And yes, it, it, it's crazy what I think an injured or a winged bird will do. You know, yeah, I just don't know. I mean, it, so. it it was wild, and it got really silent for about thirty to forty five seconds afterwards. And next thing I know, here comes my dog back with the same bird in his mouth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, soaking wet, and I'm just like, whoa! I I would not have believed that. Right. A, a a bird that's not a waterfowl or anything like that. Right, an upland bird, yeah. Right. <laughs> so yeah, what's it doing? What's it doing? But I just think it's a move of last last move of desperation. <laughs> well, these yeah. dogs don't care, man. They are they they have a job to do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, Britta sounds like the type of dog I need, man. <laughs> Yeah, she was a nice dog. She was a, she was a, you know, for especially like I say, we didn't know what to do with her. We, yeah. you know, someone who knew how to train would have done really right by her, I'm sure. But yeah, um, yeah. we yeah. put her on birds, so she got to hunt a lot. Right. So I guess when did it click for you that you wanted to train and breed dogs and and start working for field trials and, and or working field trials? And then when did the short hair conversion go over to the setter? Yeah, so you know, I was pretty young when we had when we had that short hair, and then I went to college. You know, so there was a span in there where there was no dogs. It was like the the dark period. You know, right? <laughs> uh, it, was, yeah. it wasn't very good. Um, so I went to college, and then I actually moved up to northern Wisconsin, and I took a job, which I still have. I work full time as a conservationist, um, which is an so, awesome job. <laughs> and. Uh, so I took that job and I still have that job. I've been there, oh gosh, almost 23 years, I think. Wow. Um, so 
I lived in an apartment for a while. Of course, I couldn't have a dog there. You know, it just about drove me nuts. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd still, once in a while, you know, I never begrudged that, you know, I never talked down about the people who don't have a bird dog. I just tell them, come, you know, come hunt with me. You can shoot over my dog, right? Right. <laughs> because, right. I, because I love the bird dog so much. But I'll tell you what, when I didn't have a dog, I would go jump shoot ducks or whatever. I still had to do something, you know, and get right. out there. So, um, but. After a while, I was able to buy a home um, where I am now near Danbury, Wisconsin, and I got about 10, 10 acres here. So as soon as I had had my house, I went and got a pup. Of course. And and I got a setter pup. So I kind of had just decided that where I lived with all the grouse and woodcock cover, which that, those, are, those are the birds we have to hunt here, you know, and there's a lot of them. And I thought the setter is just the classic dog for that. I figured mm -hmm. so. That's mm -hmm. it's kind of you know just I made the leap. Well, I uh, I I would like to say that you are about as poetic about setters on grouse as I am about pointers on quail. Yeah. You you got a lot of stuff. I've been reading your your um, Instagram post. You're a big Aldo Leopold fan. You're a bit poetic oh, yeah. about the dogs, my friend. <laughs> All right, I appreciate that. Sometimes I think I am, but you know, I, I have to ask my wife sometimes. Does it sound okay? Well, it it really does. But you know, one thing, and and just to get into the whole literary aspect of it. So I one of my one of the books that I really enjoy in my um, small but growing library of bird dog books is um, The Quail and the Quail Dog, written by Ozark Ripley. I'll have to read that. I don't know that one. Oh, man. I'll, I'll send you a photo of it um, to know what to look for. And I somehow managed to, it, it looks like I got my hands on a first edition. Because it's an old nice. book. It's a very old book. But, you know, for the... The, the diehard traditionalists that are, you know, your quail men, your grouse guys and stuff like that, your folks believe in hunting over a setter or a pointer. Well, right. you know, when you talk to these guys, when you hear, you know, all of these, you know, old literary writers, to be up in the north, you know, up in the north woods in, in Wisconsin it just seems like, you know, the, the English setter is the right dog for that. I don't know what it is, but I, I feel like you made the right decision. Like down here in the South, I had to get a pointer, man. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and also the trials I compete in. It's mm -hmm. not that it has to be, but mm -hmm. mostly it's set. It, mostly it's setter and pointers. Yes. So, you know, that's what I'm seeing also mostly. So, yeah. um, that's, it's kind of what what's around you, um, right. but I'll tell you what I'm definitely getting a pointer pup at some point. I told I told Katie I said at this point I think I want to breed my own setter pups mm -hmm. and 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 buy buy a pointer pup now. Look, <laughs> oh my, when I tell you it is addicting, my friend, it is. Oh yeah, <laughs> and and I I can't get enough of it. Um, when you get a pointer pup, I always tell people like. You know, I'm going to always tell people, go get one from Pine Hill down here because, I mean, Gary's yeah, got yeah. such a long-standing field trial dog history. I mean, and right. I was I was 
thoroughly excited to get a dog from Elhu Snakefoot, Elhu Magoo. He's got Kiwi in his blood. Like, it's just this wild background, this wild pedigree, right? Um, and, and again, as somebody like yourself that reads about that stuff, I just really think that you would appreciate that. Like, like I said, oh, for it, sure. Yeah. I've read, I've read Bob Whaley's books. I, I think I've read, I read snake foot mm-hmm. Naked the champion. Mm-hmm. And, um, I read his wing and shot. Mm-hmm. Wing and shot. Yep. shot yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, I read, I read, you know, <laughs> when I was dogless, that's all I would do, man. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I just consumed everything I could consume about it. I read it on, on the internet. I read books. I read training books. Mm-hmm. I read Delmer Smith's training book. Oh, People yeah. ask me, I met a guy at work um, years ago, you know, and he said, he said, Hey, I got a bird dog puppy. I said, Hey, I, I got the book you need to read. And I gave, <laughs> the, I, I lent him Delmer Smith's book. Uh huh. Like, this is all you need, man. Yep. Yep. You want to <laughs> so, know, you, you know, know, that's the book that I'm using right now. That stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think Delmer Smith is. I mean, who doesn't? But you know, he's right. just a legend. So. Right, right. He's and a... I, I saw Rick Smith at Pheasant Fest in February. I think Rick Smith. He's just a you know, the touch that they have with dogs is just something else. Man, I, what what is it about that family, man? Yeah, you know, I don't know. The, they just grow up. They just partner that style and growing up around animals their mm-hmm. whole life and being around livestock, even you know, horses. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Delmer's books is all I ever know to horse talk. Right. right. That's right. And that's right in his book. So, and my wife, Katie, who's worked with horses a lot more than me, and she's really a lot more experienced with it. It's so interesting because we'll be talking about dog training, mm-hmm. and she'll she'll stop me and look me in the eye and say. That's exactly like horse training. Wow, really? Yes. And, and, you know, we'll be talking about a certain thing. In fact, when Rick Smith was using this Wonder Lead mm-hmm. at, at Pheasant Fest, it's this real, in, you know, if, if you're really jerking on the dog hard, I don't, you know, you, you're not really doing it right. Right, right. But it's, it's just a little pull and give and a mm-hmm. pull and give and, and she looks up and she leans over to me at Pheasant Fest and says that's just like horses yeah yeah you know and yeah. a lot of it's a crossover you know from working with horses and I think that people like that who are around animals their whole life they just have an act for it right uh, well again you know I'm a, I'm a big proponent of the Wonder Lead I have I'm, I'm working my my second dog on the same Wonder Lead I, I worked my first dog on. When I tell you, Paul, like, if I have to go out with any training tool for the day, it's going to be that Wonder Lead. That's it. Yeah, I mean, yeah it works. Yeah. So let me let me ask you this, and we're getting into the, the, the philosophical aspects of it. Like, And we were talking about this earlier. What do you think the link is or the relationship is between humans, dogs, and horses. Like, why have those things been so consistent for thousands of years at this point in time? Hmm, boy, I don't. I'm probably not smart enough to answer. <laughs> <laughs> other, other than just to say, I think they've just kept it for so long, right? Like, I don't know the, you know, tribes in you know um, Asia have been on horseback. You know, there's certain people over there that. Or put on a horse when they're a baby, right? Right. There's, there's just, I don't know, it's just a, a centuries-old relationship between the 
dog and the man and woman and the horse, I think. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I can't probably articulate it too much better than that, but um, I haven't quite gotten to the horseback field traveling yet. Yeah. Because yeah. I because I don't have the gated horse, but I'll tell you, I, I'm hoping I'm on my way to it eventually. So. Oh man, and you got you got to get the Tennessee Walker too, man. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I I just had to ask, man. Like, it's something so weird. Like, the more I get drawn to the dogs, the more I get drawn to horses too. So I'm right behind yes. you, man. Yeah, yeah. And, you know what's interesting? Katie and I talked about this not not too long ago. We talked about it before. But what makes it even more interesting sometimes is when you realize that the horse is really a prey animal mm-hmm. for for the descendant of a wolf. Right, a wild horse could yep. be taken down by a wolf or a yep. coyote. So, so that makes it even more interesting that you know you you can get these domesticated versions of those animals to work mm-hmm. together in such unison. Right. And to be a team, really, like, you, I, I love the, the um, podcast with Neil Carter Jr. What a great, you know. Oh, I'm, man, yeah. I'm, when I tell you I listened to it three times, man, it's like, <laughs> I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. But the, just the way he talks about horses and dogs and the relationship they have and the re- relationship he has with them. And yeah. It's sort of like, man, if you want to aspire to something, then there it is. There right? it is. Yeah. Oh, I agree. And. I want I want to get you in contact with Neil, man. Like for sure, he is a great guy. So just speaking about that podcast, and you know, I'll chat with you in training and stuff. Was there? I'm just curious. Was there anything in that particular episode that you know really stuck out to you as far as your own training? Was there anything you kind of that resonated with you? Uh, you know, maybe just the way that Neil talked about the way his dogs are and, um, you know, like when he said there, yeah, they, you know, once they're broke, they don't create, they don't take a step. They mm-hmm. don't creep an inch. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I feel like that's where I want my dogs to be too. You know? yep. um, if I, if I, if people say to me, my dog's kind of creeping on birds, what do I do about that? I say, get them broke. Yep. Yep. But and then that, you know, there's this relationship between the dog and the bird that at some point I don't think the handler should get in between. Right. Until the dog, for example, let's say the dog wants to put the bird up, then you can stop them. Then Because you taught them that you're supposed to stand there when the bird flies. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. so I think that takes a creep and everything out of a lot of dogs. But I was just really, I really love the way that he talked about the way he gets his dogs right because I... Uh, you know, not to say that I do everything exactly like Neil Carter Jr., but I mean, I could relate with that. You know, like mm-hmm. that's how I want my dogs to. Mm-hmm. And the way he talked about training them and getting them to that point, I just thought, um, man, if you could hang around a guy like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just yeah. He just watch him even, you know, watch and put his hands on a dog and stuff. That's what I, that's the kind of stuff I live by. I want to. If I can take a little bit of something from everybody I, I work dogs with, you know, even people less experienced than me. Yeah. Like, um, you know, I, I go run dogs with guys that, you know, I've been doing it um, in the last couple of years more and more even. Uh, and I find that, you know, you don't have to have been doing it for 60 years. I, maybe you've done it for five years and I can still learn something from Absolutely. I can look at your dog and see how, you know, 
I can still learn something from that. So. Absolutely. I, I love I love that. I love working dogs with other people. Right. Well, and that that's the best part about what it is that we do. You know, I think I think so often do folks get get it mixed up and and they think that you know, expertise has to come from 60 years worth of stuff. And, and there is a lot of expertise that does come from that. But it will. It will. Yeah. Right. You know, but there are people that are busting their butt every day and, and are finding out new insights about the dog. And, and they are young guys. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you see people like uh, I've seen trainers like take a, a couple different methods of, of of doing something and make their own method out of that. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. And, uh, and I see people, do, you know, people that haven't even been training that long. I see them do stuff like that. And I, I always think I can learn from people. I learn from from everybody I go run a dog with. I learn something. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to make it sound negative yet, but one of the things I learned at a people not to do, you know, sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes you learn that. Right. And that's okay. That's okay too. Right. And I don't mean to say that something, you know, I don't mean to say somebody else is doing something wrong, but you know, um, you, you learn how you want to train, how you want to be and what your style of training is going to be. Maybe, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So. And and I really think that's important. You know, I learned it, it. I watch your videos, you know, on your Instagram daily, my friend. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. And, you know, and because I hope, I hope there's some good stuff on there. Somewhere. Oh, look, I'm telling you, I, I you probably get a string of likes from me because I am learning a lot of stuff. You know, one thing that and we'll we'll get on onto this as we're going in that direction. You know, I want to talk to you about the force fetch table because right. to be honest, Paul, I I am I am not and I'm learning to be, but I am not a fan of quote unquote force fetch. But what I'm really right, true, right. let's get down to the common denominator. What I'm really truly not a fan of is not the action of force fetch, is the 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 idea of force. Okay. Right. Right. And I think yeah. that word has a negative connotation, and I had to get over that. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, how are you using the force fetch table, and and how can we use it properly? Because I really like the way that you do it. Right. So first, I'll just say I'll I'll admit right up front that I'm no expert at force fetch and I've haven't I actually have not done it that much but mm-hmm. I feel like I have a good handle on it at this point I feel like and you I, do I, too I, <laughs> well you know I, I feel like I'll tell you what I've learned so far how about that I, I sort of feel like everything I do in dog training is a process of me learning and getting better at it mm-hmm. and so I don't always like to tell people here's how you gotta do it you know like right. Because even I've seen, you know, you've seen 10 different ways of doing force match, right? Absolutely. I've seen people use just a collar. I've seen people, I've seen people use the wonder lead, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess what I'm using is an ear, an ear pinch as a point of contact. And, and I'll tell you what, I, what I've learned about um, to this point, what, some of the, some of the things I've learned. Okay. Right. So, um, with a, with, it seems like the easy part is the hold part to me, mm-hmm. you know. 
and, and different dogs are different, of course, but uh, now we're now we're to the big hurdle, which is picking the the bumper or the dummy whatever up off the table. And I think you have to really show your dog what you want, right? right? You, can, I mean, you can stand there and whatever whatever point of contact you decide to use, whether it's a toe hitch or a ear or a e collar or whatever you use, you can stand there and just apply pressure and get nothing right you know right and you really have to show i think what you're doing on the table is you're showing the dog what you want and then the force part is really just the stimulation that you turn on and off when you get the desired response right mm -hmm. so i mean if you simplify it down to that and then it's just attrition you're just doing it a thousand times right so um, I don't really like the idea of force either. And one of the, one of the things I've learned early on is that um, it doesn't really take much if you're showing them what you want. Right. right. Do you know what I mean? So let me give you an example of what I mean. Maybe I've got a dog like this dog I'm working now. Sometimes she'll she'll turn away from that thing or she'll stand up real straight because the, the dummy's on the table and I won't. And so by the force or whatever the point of contact is, I'll physically put her in a position that she's going to pick that thing up. You know what I mean? Right. So I'm showing that dog and, and she might balk at that a little bit too, mm -hmm. but you know, it's, it's, um, you just have to be persistent. Right. Know? Well, no, uh, I, I think that's a very good thing, you know, and to maybe add to that, I've seen you do it. There are varying levels of that force, too. For sure. Yep. And and what I want to do as much as possible, of course, is just go as light as I possibly can. And sometimes I'll that I'll I'll apply a, this a little real light pressure and I'll wait and wait and wait, probably sometimes longer than, than you know, your average person might wait, but I really, I don't want to torture a dog on the table. Right. When I take that dog in that room and she sees that table, she jumps up there on her own. Right. Right. You know, and you think, what do you, how, why would they do that? You're pinching their ear. Well, yes, but you know, I'm also, as soon as she gets that dowel in her mouth, it's the greatest thing she ever did. And that you've seen the video where she's wagging her tail mm -hmm. and she, I walk her up and down the table and I tell her how well she's done, you know? So you've got a dog that wants to work for you and do work for you. Then you can get that out of them. You Absolutely. know, you can make, you can make it a positive thing, even though there's some pressure involved. Right. Right. And, and that's, that's the thing that, Again, I, I watch very closely to your videos, and you are very keen to reinforce, you know, the idea that, hey, keep the dog's tail wagging and things like that. Because so often, and I, I'll even say it's pretty frustrating to get a dog to do something as simple as fetch, right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. It, 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 it's, a know, it's a very frustrating process. Go ahead. It, no, no, I was just going to say, and this dog, you know, so... The first grouse I ever shot over, mm -hmm. she pointed and the bird happened to be between me and the dog. So I flushed it and it, it flew straight back over her head and I shot it. And she, so she had a real good line on where that bird went. She ran it down as soon as it hit the ground and picked it up. And she ran back to me about halfway and dropped it. 
Huh. And so, you know, she wants to fetch a bird. Right. She wants to get the bird in her mouth already. But you could, you know, I just want it to be bulletproof. Right. Right. I want her to do it every single time and bring it all the way to me every single time. Every time. Yep. And so, you know, there's, that's a different thing than, you know, I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that have a retrieving dog and, you know, sometimes it'll drop it a few feet before it gets to you or sometimes halfway or, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it brings it in all the way. And that's okay. Right. That's probably with me a lot of the time, but sometimes, you know, particularly with this dog, I just decided I want her to be bulletproof. Right. On, on her on her retrieve and I think if that if that's really your goal like I don't you know maybe I'm wrong but I don't think there's any labs at retriever trials that have not have a trained retrieve put on them maybe, no, maybe I'm wrong not but at the I retriever trials no. I think they've all been through some process like this you know right well so, and we're talking first of all we're talking about a Labrador retriever so it yes. makes no, you know, just getting down to the simple, the simplest aspect of it. You're not going to be a retriever and not retrieve well. That's the least that you can do. Exactly. Yeah. You, you know, um, yeah. with the trained retrieve, it, there is there are labs that do it more fluidly and I guess maybe more stylishly than others. Um, but at the end of the day, the retrieve has to be made. Um, right. You know, I can even say for myself, a retriever guy, I don't let my lab, you know, I don't let anytime he retrieves a bird wild or in in training, you are to come to hand every time, non-negotiable. Right. Like, and sit at heel, sit down. Um, You're not going to mangle my birds. I mean, and that is something that is done very, very, very early on. Um, Yep. You know, now with pointers, with pointing breeds, sometimes the retrieving aspect gets placed not on the back burner, but it seems like it gets placed behind actually pointing, which makes sense. I mean, sure, sure. You know, and then yeah. and then we're talking about if we're talking about field trial guys, some field trial dogs will never retrieve. Correct. Yeah. You, you see what I'm saying? Because yeah. guys are going to pick them up. And move them and send them on about their way. Yep, exactly. So I have, I would say, what is my best dog? Mm-hmm. I've never taught, I've never taught her to retrieve, and I'm not at all worried about that. Right. And, and let me tell you, and I'll tell you why. So this particular dog, I'll run her in walking field trials where, like you say, there is no retrieving going on. We shoot a blank gun when the bird flies away, right? Right. So, so I specifically don't want that dog to anticipate a retrieve mm-hmm. now on the other side of that coin i also take that same dog all over the country and and kill wild birds over her points mm-hmm. and she has retrieved wild birds right so what i do with her is she comes unbroke when you know she'll actually come unbroken that's probably a little bit of my laziness as well so you know do as i say not as i do right yeah (laughs) Yeah. um, you know so but the reality is is if you start flopping dead birds in front of a broke dog you know day after day after day in front of their nose and unless you're there to correct them 
when they want to go, some of them are going to start breaking. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the reality of it. So so I kind of let her come unbroken. Here's a, here's a story I'll tell you about when I was hunting with uh, my buck Flanagan. You know, border to border outfitters. Absolutely. You, you probably talk. You probably talked to Pat a couple times. Yeah, I love, hey, Pat's oh, a good dude. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's the he's the best kind of guy. So we got a chance to go hunting with Pat um, this past October. And I believe it was his, he has a couple of, more than a couple, but he's got some really good grouse dogs. And um, I think it was one of his pointers he had down, um, either Pearl or Lily. But she went up, she had pointed the grouse, and Pat shot it over her point. And we could not find that bird for the life of us. We looked and looked. And, you know, in the wolf, a lot of place for a wing bird to hide. Um, there's a lot of thick cover and down trees and stuff. So we looked and looked and looked and we couldn't find her. And I was hunting my, this, my best dog, Blaze, the one I'm referring to that I that I don't really usually let her retrieve, right? Mm-hmm. So so she had cast out a ways and I had called her in and she worked where Pat, Pat was standing where he thought the bird had gone down. So my dog, Blaze, came in and she pointed. She went on point by this, by this dead log. And... Pat took a couple of steps toward it, and as soon as he did, the winged grouse got up and started fluttering. And of course, we both at the same time started telling, "Get, you know, get it, get it, you know." Right. <laughs> right. The dog to telling the dog to get the bird. Well, she she ran it down. She grabbed it. She Pat walked over and she gave it to Pat. And you know, a, this is a dog who's never been taught to retrieve before. But when I'm hunting, I let her do her job. You mm-hmm. know. And she recovered that bird. And she's, I don't think we've ever lost a winged bird with this dog because she'll either point it dead or she'll also um, go find the bird, you know, like she did with this winged bird that, that Pat had. So as far as the retrieving goes, um, you know, it's dog, to, you know, I, between dogs, I kind of decide which ones I want to retrieve and which ones I don't. And it's somewhat related to the field trialing aspect of it. But um, right. like I say, I like I say, we hunt enough that eventually they got birds in their mouth. Right. <laughs> um, right. In fact, this this particular dog, here's another story people probably won't believe. But we were in Kansas this past fall and um we got in this. We got into some prairie chickens in this big uh, walk-in hunting area, mm-hmm. and we had a di- we had a different, a younger dog now. And so the younger dog had pointed these prairie chickens, and I had my twenty gauge, which has some fairly open chokes on it because we were mostly quail hunting. We were looking for quail, right? And I took probably a little bit longer chickens than I should have. So, so what happened was I winged the bird and it went down and we had one dog on the ground and we could not find that bird. It was, mm. a, it was a younger two-year-old dog that I had. We looked and looked and looked and we couldn't find that bird and I was sick to my stomach. You know, I, I, I mean, that's how I feel. I don't want to ever, ever lose a bird, you know. Right. So I kind of felt sick to my stomach and I was, t- you know, Katie will tell you she probably got tired of hearing me complain about it, that we lost this bird. Oh, I know the feeling, though. Trust me, I know it, the it was a Yeah, you're, you know, you just get this sinking feeling like, man, that's, you know, you just don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we came back, was it six days later? Six days later, at the end of our trip, 
And we put this dog that I'm referring to, Blaze. She's my best dog. We put Blaze down in the same field. And I, th- my thought was, well, maybe we'll find the, the, the rest of this group of prairie chickens and we'll get some more shooting it. So she goes out into the middle of this big CRP area and she goes on point. And we walk out in front of her and that winged prairie chicken flutters up in front of her. Are you serious? Yep. Days, days, like six days later. Wow. And, and we and Katie and I, of course, same situation. We both start telling, get it, get it. You know, we're <laughs> like, get the bird. She runs that bird down, grabs it, brings it back to me. You know, so we never taught that dog how to retrieve. But as far as I'm concerned, she's a retrieving dog. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, absolutely. So, uh, absolutely. It, so, you know, some of the setters that I'm at, it, in my experience, they they just they'll just do that. You yeah. don't have to. You don't really have to teach them. But um, like if I want a bulletproof retrieve, like what I'm trying to get with the train retrieve, it's a different deal. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm. So, you know, I'm facing a similar dilemma. Okay, I yeah. I've got two dogs, a, a, a Labrador Retriever and a Pointer that. Right now, I'm working on my pointer's retrieve because of Nastra, okay? Yeah. And and, and that's the, the walking trial that I plan on competing in. And then later, when I decide to get horses, I will have, um, I'm planning on having Vegas, hopefully, if, if I'm successful, transition over into the, um, the trials that Neil and them do, yep. which is totally horseback. Yes. But... I wonder what the transition is going to be like if I, not now, it's going to be, I'm talking, I'm probably thinking way too far ahead, but I want to think about how I'm going to teach these two dogs how to hunt together. My first inclination is to teach Vegas how to retrieve, but when we're on wild birds, never let him retrieve and let Ruger finish the job. Mm-hmm. You know, but then there's another, yeah. there's another piece of me, right? That is kind of like, all right, shoot the bird. Both dogs are steady, and I alternate who I want to retrieve. I see. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I always thought it would be really neat to have like a the the healed flushing dog that went for the retrieve too. So that's kind of the, you know, <laughs> I guess they use they use the cocker spaniels a lot in the uh, down south. But, yeah, that you know, yep. I always thought that would be so cool to have that. Mm-hmm. So, you know. The, the flushing dog going for the retrieve. It's a thing down here, man. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's definitely a thing, but you know, with Nastra, Vegas has to retrieve. Period. Right. You yeah. know, and when you're talking about the other trials, whether it be walking and horseback, well, I mean, some of them again, you just fire the the um the blank gun and you just move the dog. Right. Exactly. Part of me wants to get him fully broke and then give myself the options. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Am you I know, putting a lot on myself? No, no. You know, the, you can definitely, like, like I described, I sort of let my dog come unbroke mm-hmm. and I kind of let her retrieve. And then, you know, when the field trial season comes around, I put a belly band on her again. I get her out on a few, you know, wild birds again, like she's going to trial on. I run her on a few grouse and I just steady her up again. And right. it usually only takes a couple trips, you know. These dogs are real smart. Like 
I remember Neil uh, Carter Jr. talking about that too. Remember when he talked about there's a lot of these dogs, pointers and setters, they're really smart dogs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, other breeds too. I don't want them, but yeah. you know, my experience, my experience is I'll I'll speak mostly from my experience, and that's most of what the dogs I see are pointers and setters. And uh, gosh, they're smart. You know, you really gotta like this one pup I have. I tell my wife sometimes I've gotta like figure out how to outsmart her sometimes. You know, right. Um, but it's she reads me. She like reads my body language, you know, and she knows what I'm gonna, where I'm gonna go, and what I'm gonna do sometimes, you know. Right, absolutely. So, um, but they're smart, and you can get them broke again, you know. That's kind of what I do with mine, and I don't know. Some people might think that's sloppy or lazy, like you should keep your dog broke during hunting se- hunting season. But um, you know, I want her to go run those birds down that we winged, and I want her to get those birds. Right. So. That's not keeping your dog broke, yeah. right? When you tell them get him, get him, you know, <laughs> you don't, you no longer have a broke dog, right? And, and there's a little bit of, of sad, personal satisfaction that goes into that too. Oh, for sure. You know, I don't want to lose that bird. Yeah. You know, that at that point in time, I'm a bird hunter, so mm-hmm. I guess I'm I'm about fifty fifty. I love field trials. And it gives me something to do with my dog in the off season, you know, like the spring training season and the spring trials going on right now. Mm-hmm. I, you know, and I don't want to pick on anybody, but I see a lot of people, t- you know, like lamenting the fact that the hunting season's over. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Right. I'm in the wo- I'm in the woods as much as I can be right now. Right. Right. So you know, it's a, you know, I always encourage people if you really love the bird dog part of it, go find like a whether it's Nastra or. You know, um, U.S. Complete, you know, mm-hmm. not, any of these kind of clubs, go find a bird dog club and you can work your dog all year long. Right, right. You sure can. You know? mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the best part of it. You know, and, and even, you know, we're talking about these field trial clubs, man. You know, talk about, I want to know what some of your early years, like the first years with the Minnesota yeah. Grouse Dog Association were like, what was, what, how did that impact your training? So I think it was the early 2000s. I don't know exactly when, maybe around 2002 or 2003. I started, um, how did I find out about it even? I don't even know. You know, I had subscribed to the American Field publication for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Even, when I was a little, even when I was a little kid, I would get that thing and, I didn't even know what I was reading yeah. back then, you know. Right, I'm <laughs> but, I'm I'm the same now. I don't know what I'm reading half the time. What American feel, <laughs> but it sounds good. <laughs> right, right. So, uh, so then I I'm sure I heard about the club through that maybe. Um, I went to a meeting and you know kind of paid my dues and I met some of the guys and I uh, then I went the the big deal was going to watch the trials and start walking some braces and see what's this all about, you know. Mm-hmm. So I did. That's what I tell people to do. Maybe maybe it's for you, or maybe it's not for you. But just go walk and watch the dogs and watch the handlers and see what they do and see if you think that it's something that you like. And it, I thought it was great. You know, I saw people um, like Jerry Coulter from Northwoods Bird Dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, he he was he's been a long time club member. He's um, and especially back then he was he was real active and that he he would run in all the trials and Jim Tandy. Um, Jim's a, one of the directors of the club now, even, and he's a old, you know, he won the Grand National Grouse Championship back in, I want to say, the 80s or something, you know. Right. So he, he's been he's been around the game forever. So I got to see guys like that, 
um, handle their dogs and I watched and I watched and I watched, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, I, that's really how I got into the, the, uh, grouse dog clubs. And, um, I had some really good people, some really good, uh, hang on just a second here. Uh, I had some really good exam, you know, some really good people that I could watch handle dogs and, mm-hmm. um, really just had an impact on me. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't even have a dog to run at first. I just went to watch. Right. So that's what I tell, that's what I tell people to do. If you want to go see what it's all about, just go watch. They'll, you know, we'd love it when people come to watch the dogs and, uh, the, the club is always real welcoming. I found so, and then I also went and um, started going to some trials down at the Chippewa Valley Grouse Dog Association, which mm-hmm. is a couple hours south of me. Um, so it's a little further away, but there was some really good, uh, really good handlers down there as well. And you know, they'd run a championship, but they'd even get guys come from Pennsylvania um, with the wow. string of dogs. So. Yeah, you know, so I got to see guys like Robert Ecker and um, Lance Bressler is one of my, I just love seeing Lance come to the grouse championships every year. He's been handling dogs for a long, long time, and he knows he knows bird dogs as well as anybody. And, you know, he's one of those guys that he, if he's at a trial, you better show up to beat him because mm-hmm. he's, got a, he's got a dog on his truck that can beat everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so I got to see guys like that, from even guys from all over the country, from out east and stuff, and um, that was at Chippewa Valley. And then uh, a friend of mine, Sig Deggett, started a, a grouse dog club just about 20 miles north of where I live here are the grounds. And um, it's called the Moose River Grouse Dog Club. So, okay. so I've got three three really good active clubs, and I'm kind of in the middle of that whole triangle of them. Okay. So I'm really lucky. I'm, you know, I have in in um, in Wisconsin and Minnesota here. It's there's a few good, really good professional handlers, and then most of the rest of us are amateurs. Right. And I'll tell you what, there's I think some of the best amateurs in the grouse trout game are around here. Um, like I said, Bill Fromm, who just won the region 19, I, he's won several championships, I think. And, um, uh, you know, Sig Deggett, I mentioned, he's won several championships. And, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. there's just a lot, a lot of good amateurs around here. When you see the brace sheet and you go, Oh, there's only one pro in it. That's not much of a relief because right. <laughs> all the, all the amateurs on the list are just as good. Yeah. Almost all, you know, you got to go and beat all of them too. So, there's just a lot of good amateurs around here, and it's it's a it's a great group of people. Wow, that's cool, that's cool. And and I hear, man, like these amateurs, it's like every year. The only thing that differentiates an amateur from a pro is literally just the idea of making money off of it and doing it full time. You know, and right. so these amateurs right. are busting their butts, right? You know, to get to it. Man. Oh yeah, yeah that's the thing and these guys they work hard at it you know um mm-hmm. these amateurs i know they run their dogs hard and um i mean that's and that that's it, one of the 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 things and I, I like I, that. no it's not to interrupt but i was no, say, i've learned a lot from you know from just going and working dogs with with the really good that i've met through the clubs and stuff so mm-hmm. um so 
let's 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 talk about wild birds, Paul. Let's talk about wild birds. <laughs> Absolutely. Now we now we into the hunting season, the part that everybody wants to get to next fall. So how are right. you how are you breaking your dogs on rough grouse and, and woodcock? Talk about the numbers in your area, because I mean you're you're pretty fortunate to have that. Are you just are there any special things that you kind of key in or clue in on? with the dogs and then i want to get into your spring grouse training as well sure so like right now we're i'm running pretty hard in the woods um you know the the covers is down as it'll ever be you know Mm -hmm. before the trees start to leaf out and things so um it's a great time to run and the temperature is pretty good you know we got a couple inches of snow the last couple of days, so yeah. it's not great. But, you know, usually in April and the woodcocks start to come back. Right. So we hit a spot. Um, actually, I think I think I might have posted something about it on Instagram. or um, I went out with a friend of mine, Phil, and we hit one spot. And Phil had this pup, um, really nice pup that's 11 months old. And um, I think while I was with Phil, we ran for about an hour, hour and a half. I ran a couple of puppies I had. Anyway, we moved maybe two grouse and five woodcock in maybe an hour or so. Wow. And then uh, in this spot I had taken Phil to, uh, he stayed there a little bit longer. And he texted me later and said he moved something like 12 grouse and 20 more woodcock. <laughs> so... You know, we can, there's spots where we can really get into them. When you when you have a pup, especially like Phil, you know, I had a two pups with me, and Phil had a young pup, and you you have wild birds to put them on like that. That's like that's gold, you know. Mm-hmm. You're you're making you're making them into bird dogs at that point. So right, right. Um, and, and we've been pretty fortunate. We have a lot of we have a lot of county forest land. Okay, so mm-hmm. it's all tons and tons of public forest around here, and they cut it. They harvest a lot of it. So what you end up with is a lot of young forest cover, and that's perfect for grouse and woodcock. And, I mean, you can really write up my – in fact, our 10 acres border, so we can hunt grouse out our back door. I think Katie said she flushed three grouse behind the house tonight. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So, you know, there we got birds, man. <laughs> wow, yeah, man. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, and, and that is the true epitome of the birds break. You know, the, the birds really do make the dog. I mean, you're getting sure. them yep. dogs into it frequently, all the time. Now, how young are the pups that you're starting on birds? So I can get my pups, I take them on puppy walks as soon as they're old enough to get through the grass. You know, they're seven and eight weeks old. Yep. I start walking about and um you know, they may not notice the grouse when they're eight-week-old pups. But of course. As they get older, um, I, I I try to get them on puppy walks as much as possible and just get them into wild birds as many times as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, I think that's critical to me. I the, the female that had our last litter blaze, she was... Um, you know, I, she, she was pointing wild birds like grouse when she was 11, 12 months old, so pretty reliably you know you you probably could have almost guided over her when she was 18 months old so she you know part of that is her natural talent but part of it is also the fact that i put her on 
I don't know how many grouse, you know, grouse mm-hmm. in that 12 month period or, you know, six month period or however, however long it was before mm-hmm. she really had it figured out. And that's what it takes. You know, they got a lot of birds um, before they really start, start, start getting it down. And grouse are, especially in the springtime like this, they're tough birds to get pointed for a pointing dog, for, for some pointing dogs. Some pointing dogs just don't get it done. I've seen pointing dogs that just cannot handle rough grouse. Right. Right. So they're, they can be really skittish. And, you know, sometimes people talk about, I even had a guy at work once who owns, whose own setters. And he said to me, well, you can't point a rough grouse with, with a pointing dog. That just what? doesn't work. He said, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's wow. people, yeah, they're, no, they can be that. That's my experience with that is that the person who's only had a dog or two and thinks that the rough grouse over a point is unattainable. It's because they had a dog who couldn't handle the bird. Right. And so I've been, and the reason I say that is because I've had dogs that could not handle the bird. Okay. Right. Now they handle woodcock better. Woodcock will usually sit like a rock. Usually. Okay. Right. Sometimes in the spring, and some people who don't work woodcock in the springtime probably don't know this either, but um, if you don't work them in the springtime, the flight birds can be really tricky sometimes. They'll sit in a spot for a short amount of time, I think, and they don't lay down a lot of scent, and then they'll flutter a little bit away. And it's, you know, they, they, there's sometimes you'll get in an area and you'll see woodcock splash and it's just everywhere. And hmm. so you, you can get certain dogs will false point that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you have migrating woodcock, I'm telling you, man, I've seen them where they're almost like mosquitoes in the air at a certain, when it's dusk and the lumens, the, the amount of light is just right. Mm-hmm. I've seen the, a flight of woodcock and you can't believe how many of them there are. So, yeah, you know, when you have, when you have that many birds in a small area, some dogs will absolutely come unglued from that and they won't even know what to do with that. Really? So, so yeah, so woodcock can be real easy. And sometimes they can be real tricky. <laughs> yeah, know? no. And pr- particularly in the spring, I found them to be a little tricky. And and sometimes they run like the devil. Right. Right. And so that's a you know that's the thing that woodcock are occasionally doing too. I've actually last fall I had a dog relocate almost like thirty or forty yards on a running woodcock. I couldn't believe it was a woodcock when I flew. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So you know, but but a lot. But, you know, most of the time they'll sit pretty good. The okay. gentleman's bird, you know, for the pointing dog, I guess they say. Right. So, and and that's what a lot of folks do. Now, you know, when you're trying to communicate to a dog to relocate, and and this is going into trials on wild birds. You know, is there a cue? Because I've seen folks tap a dog on the head and it'll know to relocate. How are you working that into the dog, or is that something that's totally natural? <laughs> Well, so here's how I look at here's how I look at a dog relocating, and, and you know part of this comes from field trialing, and and I think part of it comes from that. You know, like I say, I'm I'm kind of fifty fifty. I I drive all over the country because I want to hunt all all the upland game birds, man. Mm-hmm. I want to I want to kill all the six quail species. You know, I want to do all that in them. And we, shoot, we went to Kansas, Arizona, and South Dakota, and, you know, Montana, and wherever else we've been in the last few years, we go all over. But what I want to do with relocates is if, if I'm not flushing, 
I want the dog to stay with the bird. Okay. So, so, so the dogs, let's say the dog's out there, let's say I'm in South Dakota, and the dog goes on point and it's out there 200 yards or whatever, and I'm not there yet, and the, it's on a, a, a group of chickens, and that those chickens move off a little bit. I mm-hmm. want that dog to just go with them and stay with them and keep them pointed. Okay. And, and keep them well located and accurately located and stay with that group of birds until I get there. Now, once I get there and I start flushing in front of my dog, I don't want my dog to move a muscle. Right. So, so once I start flushing, then the dog, I want my dog to stand, you know, be like its feet are set in concrete. Gotcha. 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 So, so once that flushing effort doesn't produce something for me, then I'll go back to the dog and I'll just tap them on and I want them to stand there until I do that. Okay. Yeah, but if I'm not there, you know, like some people say, well, you, you know, if your dog runs real big and it, you know, you don't let them relocate, then the birds will run off. No, that's not how it works. Right. <laughs> I want, yeah, you know, I want my dog to stay with that bird if I'm not there. But once I start flushing, then I want my dog to be stunching. Sometimes the bird will run away from, you know, run out from under that point anyway, particularly real spooky grouse in the woods, you know. And if you have a really good dog that re- can relocate a grouse without putting it up, and to me, that's a pretty special dog that can do it pretty regularly. But I have one right. that can do that on a regular basis, and I have six setters. So. And, you know, uh, they're decent dogs, but I have one that can relocate a really spooky running grouse on a fairly basis. She can relocate them, you know, not all the time right? because they're wild birds. You know? Right. But sometimes when we had a couple of seasons and years here where the hatch was not real good because it was the during hatching weather, uh, brooding brooding season it was really wet mm-hmm. we got like i mean like flooding monsoon rains places where i can walk in the woods and say well i know that this is an area because of the thickness of the cover where our grouse would it's standing water right <laughs> you know right. so it's just when it's that wet the the brood rearing is really bad so we had a couple seasons where you you knew you almost could know when your dog was when the dog went on point it was probably going to be an older bird. Okay. And the birds, they were running like pheasants, man. Really? You, you know, you, you could almost not get them in the air. You know, I, I hear st- birds like that. It really unhinges the dog. Yeah, yeah. And so it's tough, particularly with the grouse. And like I say, I had the one dog that could, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, fairly regularly, I don't know, maybe 50 50, you know, mm-hmm. she could get them relocated. But in that case, I would flush, you know, and it, the bird would run out from under, you know, my flushing attempt and not fly. And then I would go back to the dog and tap her on. Then she would work back and forth and try and pick that scent up again and hopefully stick the bird again, you know. Right. Um, okay. But it, it's a special dog that does that on a rough ground. Right. And that's just that now that now we're getting into the um, the natural ability side of things. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. That's that that's that relationship between dog and bird that I at least I always tell people that that's the one thing you can never train them like uh, I always like uh, um, I always go uh, 
try and put these comments sometimes on when Ryan Mulcahy makes a post, but mm-hmm. he, he had this, um, he had this post, this recent post of video where the dog pointed and took the bird out. And, uh, I just love that. You never once heard Ryan say, Whoa, 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 Whoa. He's not whoa at his dog. Right. And that's because he's not getting in between that interaction. He, he knows that he can't teach that dog how to point that bird. You mm-hmm. can't teach him how to do that. That's oh, the yeah. one thing you can't teach him. We can teach him how to handle. We can teach him how to fetch. We can teach him how to come in. But I don't. I can't smell the bird, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know how. I don't know how far out that bird is. And I really found that some of the better dogs point a little bit later. They don't. They're not super pointy when they're little pups. Yeah. And they'll take. They'll take a few birds out before they really start sticking them hard. And and sometimes they'll become the better bird dogs. I think. Right. Well, you know, Ryan is definitely a, a good buddy of mine and one that I speak with, you know, fairly regularly. Um, hell, he was on the yeah. podcast a little earlier. And, right. you know, he's he's very humble about his dogs. Every time, like you were saying, every time I see his videos, I mean, the the most that I'll really hear, and it's a whisper, he's like, there they go. And, and <laughs> It's just yeah. like, well, yeah. the dog's got to do his own work. Yes. You know, and, you know, and I, I don't know Ryan that well, but I've texted with him a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, um, I can just I can just tell right away mm-hmm. that he and I kind of developed the dog in a similar way. You yeah. know, like, um, and I can tell by watching what he's doing. And, you know, I, I don't holler woe well at my dogs either. Right. I just, you know, I it's just a different way of maybe of, of training and, and uh, you know, I really appreciate the way he does things, I guess, because I see some similarities there. And so, uh, mm-hmm. so I, I enjoy everything he puts up. Well, and, and even talking about holler and whoa, I mean, if you've got to say it more than one time, man, first of all, the dog's not right. whoa broke. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> you know, I always tell people, you know, after, after you holler the, the second time, you know, the it's just wah, wah, wah to the dog after that anyway. You know, uh-huh. They don't, they don't, it's not like they're hearing you holler and holler at them. They've tuned you out, right? Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yeah, and so. that, and that, that, you know, I, I, I think so many people assume, like we, we, people forget that woe is not point. Correct. Woe is not point. Yeah. Woe is stop. <laughs> exactly. Stop and stand still. Yep. All right. So if yep. you've got a dog with so much bird sent up his nose that he's, you know, you know, two shots away from being bird drunk. Whoa is not going to do anything. No, no, <laughs> no not at all. And I tell people, you know, if you got that, you know, maybe your dog's taking out a bird like that. And instead of hollering, whoa, stop him. Yeah. And just don't say anything. And yeah. then the next time he let him take the bird out again, the next bird, and stop him again after he takes it out and don't say a word. Mm-hmm. And pretty soon the dog will stand his bird as it flies away. You know, after a while, it'll eventually start standing that bird and you haven't said a word to it. Right, right. You know, it, it, that, that's breaking a dog. I mean, it's not a, it's not a super complex thing, <laughs> you know. It, it t- I, you know, with some dogs, it might take a little bit more finesse than it does. You know, some people maybe, you know, you have to learn that it's not a forceful thing, really. Right. But you know, um, that's what I people. I don't mind a dog that's 
that's not super, super pointy. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. I, I can stop them when they take the bird out. And I, I, don't need, I don't need to say anything. I'll stop the dog and make it stand there and watch the bird fly away. Right. And, you know, after a while, you got a broke dog and, and it won't creep. It won't take the bird out before you get there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, it's a, just a way of developing a dog. And I think I see guys like Ryan. I see him when I watch him on, on Instagram. And he's, he, that's what he's doing. He's kind of doing it this, in a similar way as me. So Absolutely. that's just always the way I've, I've approached it. Um, you know, I, years ago, I um, would read and follow guys like Maurice Lindley. Yeah. And, and um, I remember years ago, I got this old VHS tape uh, by Bill West, and it was called Training Labs to Point. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I still have that around somewhere, but I don't know oh, if that's got to be a player right anymore, now. you know? Yeah. But, um, but I used to, like I said, I used to consume all this stuff, and I would even email. I'm sure he doesn't remember my name at all, but I would email uh, Mo Lindley. I would email him and ask him questions and but I learned from from guys like this that you, this that what we're talking about right now that if you really want that dog to you, you teach him to stand and you teach him to stand still and you don't teach him to point mm-hmm. you know you teach him to stand still even if they've taken that bird out um, you, you when you stop so that they don't point right. at first you know. Right. So that you're just teaching him a bird in the air means stop and stand still. Absolutely. You know, and and I watched that video and I watched Bill West teach that lab and that lab was not a you know it wanted nothing to do with pointing a bird. Right. Sound like my crazy one over here. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, all it wanted to do was flush and jump and get get him in his mouth, but he taught that black Labrador to point quail like you wouldn't believe. You know, Mm -hmm. because he taught the dog to stop and stand when the bird got in the air mm-hmm. and pretty soon the dog would point it would you know so i don't know i learned a lot from guys like that just listening to what they had to say and um that's kind of where that whole concept comes from to me is um that, that old bill west tape and Absolutely. i think bill pa- bill passed away a long time ago now but um he's kind of a legend i think down in and bill gibbons down mm-hmm. in arizona they kind of trained the same way and maurice and then they, they all had this uh they use that pinch collar, you know, oh, to yeah. dogs. But you but know, I got concept, you know that's what I'm using. Of it, it's all the same. I got I got one pinch collar in my uh, my closet right now that I'm waiting on bringing out. Yep. 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 So, you know, and I found now I've worked. You know, sometimes setters I've broken uh, a lot of setters on birds that that I have that it, they don't really need a pinch collar. You know, you can just you you can stop them fairly easily. Right. But you know. If you've got a hard, super hard charging, you know, dog that's not quite as, you know, the setters are a little bit softer. Mm-hmm. But um, if, if you've got a super hard charging dog, that that's a it's a great tool. And mm-hmm. it, the thing that that hit home and set in with me was that concept of, um, you know, let the dog take the bird out even, and then stop right. it. Right. And event eventually that you'll get a staunch dog out of that. Mm-hmm. And it it all it almost sounds counterintuitive, you know, like. Well, I want a dog, the dog to point, stop and point. Right. Of, of course you do, but possibly ever learn where that is. You know, where's that line, right? How does the dog ever learn? It learns by taking out a few birds. Right. Well, and, and that's, that's, that again is the, the misconception that falls under 
pointing versus wooing. You said it earlier. Like, look, once the bird is gone, you don't need to keep pursuing it. You need to right. you need to stop. And and yes, it yep. does sound counterintuitive. But you know, after after a few times, a dog is going to anticipate you woeing it, and 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 it'll, and it'll start figuring out that interaction. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. So. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, and guys like Mo Lindley, I'm actually supposed to be visiting Mo because um, he's a couple of hours away from me. I'm going to visit him over the summer, you know, and I think there is even some merit to um, Ruger. What are you doing, dude? I got a dog <laughs> licking my carpet. That's weird. <laughs> like, why are you licking my carpet? Um, yeah, he's. That's what you get for looking carpet. But anywho, um, <laughs> you you have guys like Mo Lindley that are these legendary dog trainers, and Mo is deaf at this point. Yeah, you know. So I think that even adds another dimension to his training. Oh yeah, I mean, um, you know, you you want to talk about like, and I think I think from what I know of him that he he was always an advocate of you know, you didn't need to say a whole lot to your dog anyway, you know, but it's really, you know, right. They don't speak English, right? Right. right. You, you can get them all the way through without ever saying a word. Right. So, I mean, and that's, you know, it's he, a guy like him, Mo, uh, Maurice Lindley is a master as far as I'm concerned. And I never met the guy, but you know, like I said, you probably 20 years ago, I would, I would, email him i emailed him a couple times you mm-hmm. know ask him a ask him a question and this was before instagram and there was some gun dog forum or something online you know that i read through and he was just helping people out right so um you know i'm sure i asked him many questions he probably got annoyed with me but i'll tell you what he helped he's helped a lot of people out i think right and he's uh he's really given back a lot in different ways that way uh if you ask him he'll help you out you should definitely go go visit him, man. That'd be a, just the experience, a great experience, I think. Absolutely. Well, I, you know, that's definitely one thing. I've got to send him those dates, man, because I've been trying to coordinate that. And, dude, that's, that's one thing as we wrap up. i got one more major question for you. But, you know, that's one thing that as, as you know, handlers and, and owners of these bird dogs, I feel like I, I owe it to these guys, these legends, to go visit them, you know, and and really learn their process. Like I said, it's part. It's one thing to learn something from everybody, but it's also right. another big thing to learn something from the guys that know. Right. Exactly. Yep. yep. And I'm I'm enjoying like, I mean, uh, how long have you been at this bird dog thing? Three and a half years. So, so I'm enjoying the journey that you've taken somewhat because, you know, we all sort of get to follow along with it, right? But mm-hmm. it's like, you're, I mean, look at the people you've talked to already, right? Neil Carter Jr. and Bud Moore. I mean, you know, and you, you're going to go uh, see Morris Lindley probably. And, you know, I mean, the people that you cross paths with and um, – that's just a that's a great opportunity and it's um it's been enjoyable sort of to watch your uh journey and the the amount that i'm sure that you're learning from these people is just immense i mean well i i i appreciate it's, it's great it, <laughs> i appreciate it because it's it's one thing to not 
grow up with it. You know, I admire guys like you that you grew up with it. And and so you've got those years put in and those experiences and things like that. And, you know, unfortunately, I don't. I don't think it's a negative thing. I I just feel like I have to kind of clear that learning curve, if that makes sense. Right, right, yeah. You know. You're doing it, man. <laughs> you're definitely doing it. You know, I would say this thing that maybe I lacked early on was I, I probably wasn't proactive enough in, in um, you know, and I was into the bird dog clubs and stuff, but I probably didn't take as many opportunities as I should have to go train with different people and stuff mm-hmm. to, to seek out, to, to, to actively seek out people like that, you yeah. know. So that's, you know, I'm doing more and more of it now. Um, all the time and I've learned so much from yeah. from a lot of good trainers already but you know that's you've really got it you're on track man so, <laughs> well I now the, you're, you're you're learning at you're at a good pace now so you're the right people right well I I definitely appreciate it man and and even guys like you like you know I, you know I'm not just boosting you it really does mean a lot to me that you would get on this podcast and you know, share so much information because, you know, you want to learn from folks that that are, it's one thing to learn from folks that seem kind of like-minded. Right. But, you know, it, it's, it's another thing to befriend someone, go visit them. It, it, you know, you have to do that, those kinds of things. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, that's the one thing the whole, so I'm an, I'm an older guy, probably I'm 45. I'm not terribly old, but you know, no, you're not old at all. (laughs) No, you know, but I mean like this whole social media thing is not, it's a little bit foreign to me sometimes, you know, like I didn't, I didn't really grow up with that kind of stuff, you know, like, um, what was it only a couple of years ago I started using Instagram or whatever. So, but one thing I found is that there's definitely, con- definitely connections to be made. Right. Right. And if one thing it does is it makes those connections a little easier sometimes. And, mm-hmm. um, man, I've met some incredible people. Um, one of my closest friends, Pat Flanagan from mm-hmm. border to border, you know, we, I first saw him on Instagram and then we met him at a field trial. And, um, he's, I can, I consider him one of my closest friends. So, you know, and, and a lot of other people I've met, I've spoke with Nick Larson and worked dogs with Nick and met him. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, I'm glad I'm there, you know, mm-hmm. if, if mm-hmm. nothing else, the social media mm-hmm. is just having that makes it so much worth it to me. So, um, right. I, I'm hoping to make more, more connections. That's why I'm like, you know, telling, trying to invite, like when you posted, you made a post or something about, grouse hunting down south and i thought you know what if you want to go grouse hunting man you come to my house hey. like, <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm all about that now like i'm telling people somebody posted the other day they were jealous because i was at a grouse trial and i said hey you know what come and run your dog at a grouse trial and you can stay at my house mm-hmm. you know i i, I just I, i've gotten so much pleasure from um just enjoying it with other people right and yes, sharing sir. it with other people at this point and um i'm hoping to get in and start doing some guiding because i finally realized that i'm such a terrible wing shot <laughs> <laughs> but what i really really love 
is when like my buddy Pat shot a grouse over yeah. my dog and yeah. stuff like that, you know? I mean, there's just like nothing better than that, Matt. Yeah. So I'm hoping to be able to do a little maybe some guiding. Well, I th- I think you got the dogs for it, man. Like you've got some solid dogs. Yeah, you know, you gotta have dog power, right? So that, <laughs> to, to be honest with you, that was the only part I, you know, you can beat up a dog in the woods too. They they get a little banged up running through the woods and stuff, and you you know you can run them into the ground. So mm-hmm. I mean, you gotta have dog power. If you see Pat rolling around, you know he's got a few dogs on the truck. Right, right. So um, you know, you can go through some dogs for sure, and you gotta. That's one consideration that I that I've been. Right. Making sure I have everything lined up, you know, like I don't want to put myself out there and say, hey, I'll guide you if I don't have the dog power to do it. So, yeah, you, d- you definitely have to have it. Well, I, I think so, man. And I would definitely love to get up there with you and, and check those pups out, man. Um you know, it's, you're on the you're on the schedule for 2020. All right. Well, we we've already put it on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, for sure, man. <laughs> well, that's cool. Well, look, let me let me get one more question in, if you don't mind. Hey, man, I got all night. So, you know, I can go on all night about it. <laughs> so let's let's okay. Well, then I'll I'll say two questions, then, because. I've got two that I really wanted to get in before. Let's talk about how the conservationist, Aldo Leopold, like he has a lot, a huge impact on you, it seems like. what Where's that coming from? How does that work? Yeah, so, you know, I guess it started, like I said, it started with my dad, right? Like I have to credit my dad because mm-hmm. he taught, you know, he taught me this tree was this tree and i think that when i was really little i started caring caring about it a little bit you know mm-hmm. so then when i got in college i like that kind of took a course of study that you know was the natural sciences and i and um i took ecology and you know botany and i have a, actually a degree in reclamation which is um basically like a little bit like environmental engineering but more geared toward mine reclamation i guess Mm -hmm. but from that i got an internship at a conservation department so that's where the whole um my exposure to conservation and doing um you know getting into habitat work and doing water quality work um with landowners and stuff like that so throughout the course of all of that right Mm -hmm. i got into reading Aldo Leopold and I try, I don't know how many times I've read through a Sanconi Almanac, yep. but, um, he's just got a certain different way with words. Mm-hmm. I think people, I think people either love it or they hate it. Maybe I'm yeah. not sure, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's a little bit different kind of, um, it's maybe some of it, uh, I don't know how you would describe it. It's almost like an older style of English or something, some of it, but, um, it, I don't know. It's so it just the whole all of his writing resonates resonated with me, and um, just his life. You know what? Um, he's the research he, he even did as a young um, a young professional. Um, oh, I think he did research when he was in the Southwest in New Mexico on uh, predator the predator prey relationship, and and you know it was kind of a groundbreaking thing at the time where he his research showed that the predator actually keeps the prey population healthy right like yeah. the wolf i think and so yeah the, um 
And the mountain lion actually helped to keep the deer herd healthy. And we need them just as much as we need any other part of the ecosystem. So even as a young student, you know, studying um, the natural sciences and conservation, and I would read him, and I was just in awe of the guy, you know. Right, right. So um, particularly then this, you know, we get our name, Alderfork, from the from the, a chapter in a San, a San County Almanac um, entitled The Alder Fork, where, you know, he doesn't go bird hunting, but, but he goes to fish, to fly fish for brook trout mm-hmm. in, Wisconsin, in Wisconsin, specifically in Wisconsin, because he was a professor in, at Wisconsin. He was, he's from Wisconsin. Um, I don't know if he's originally from Wisconsin, but he, he lived here much of his life. And right. There's an Aldo, Aldo Leopold Center in Wisconsin, and he has his farm that he had here that's still like a little nature preserve here in Wisconsin. So there's a connection there for, for my home state as well, you know, but um, right. so the, the Alder Fork was just a chapter in his book where uh, I, at least I think he so beautifully described how he was, um, it, to me, it had the spirit of adventure in there because he was, he was going up this stream and he really didn't know what he was going to find. Right. You know? And so, um, I don't know. It, it really resonated with me, and it still does. How mm-hmm. you know it was that spirit of adventure that drove him to keep going and um, to to uh, finally you know catch a fish in this stream. And um, I don't know, man. To me, that's what the bird dogs are all about. Yeah. You know? So yeah. I just live for you know taking them out, being out there with them. Um, and I don't know if I'm going to get a bird or not, right? But um, yeah, usually I do. But, yeah, <laughs> you know, but but that's what it's all about. I, you know, I almost get emotional about it because it's you know it's really meaningful to me. But um, so you know that's that's where the name comes from, and uh, I guess it does it does have a lot of meaning for me. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I I think it's like I said, I I just really pay attention to the literary side of your podcast. I mean, not of your podcast of your. Instagram <laughs> and your website, not your yeah. podcast. And, you know, it, it just, when things like that, when, when things, when I notice things like that, I know that I'm talking to a dog man, a true dog man, right? Your, right, right. you know, for, for, for me, your Aldo Leopold is my Havila Babcock. Okay. Yeah. You, you know, he was, he uh, taught down here. He's down here in the South and, He's kind of got a, a comical, you know, nature to a lot of his writing. Um, I okay. just I just finished reading a book called um, I Don't Want to Shoot an Elephant. And, man, when you're talking about bird dogs working in the South, I think you would really enjoy it. And Aldo Leopold, I've not I've not had the privilege of reading a lot of his work. But I've read enough of it to know the impact that he's left on conservation. So when I also read that he was, you know, the the whole Alder Fork reference, I was like, oh, okay. One, you know, one plus one started equal two, equal and two for me right there. Right, right. You know, um, and, and I just think that it goes back to what I was saying. The English setter is just as is is a a poetic dog. It's an artistic dog to watch point over. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, even more so than the English pointer. Well, I don't know about more. I think more, <laughs> man. And I'm going I'm to tell you why, though. I'm going to tell you why. 
Okay, okay. Um, the flagging tail. It, yeah. You know, on a good windy day, on a wet day, the way that that hair on an English setter waves in the wind. Um, sure, sure. You know, there are things like that. That, that point, a, a pointer for me is 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 all machinery to me. It's it's like a, okay. it's it's kind of like driving a, a a Ferrari or a Porsche. It's a fast dog. Right. It's all machinery. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I know, I know what you mean. There's definitely a nostalgia and a certain um, appeal to the setter on point for mm-hmm. sure. It's, uh, it's mm-hmm. got to be that flag, I guess. But right. And I'll tell I, you, I've seen so I've seen so many nice pointers and setters. I guess. I absolutely. Just, you know. Absolutely. And and that's not gonna take away from my buddy Vegas here. Now we we we, right, we got course. a lot of job to do here too. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. But I, I um, you know sometimes I think the setter is just a pointer with long hair. <laughs> it probably really is. We're probably I mean, talking not, about the not, same dog. Bloodline wise, you know, bloodline wise, of course. But I mean, there's you know, you see, I shaved down some of my setters, and I swear you could, if it took that flag off their tail, you'd think they might be a pointer. Mm-hmm. But they're you know they're that's mostly what I see. Like I say, is the pointers and setters and. Um, there's definitely a certain appeal. You know, you don't have. I don't have to sell anyone on the setters. That's you know yeah. what I'm all about. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So you know, my last question, and I was dying to ask this before we wrap up. What all right, Matt. you know, as, as a field trialer, because I can go a hundred. I can go hundred questions more. But as a field trialer, <laughs> you know, we got time. As, when you get tired, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, I uh, I had to kick my dog out, Ruger, because he was licking carpet. I was like, "All right, dude, you gotta go." But <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, what is it about having pointers and setters in field trials? Like, what is that? Why do we see so many of them there? I mean, uh, this you see other breeds, but yeah. what is um, that? Uh, you know, for me, I think it's the particular trials that I'm, that I'm involved in. Right. So most of the trials that, you know, that I see or that I go to are, um, you know, field dog stud book sanction trials. Mm -hmm. There's definitely like, I was just braced with a Brittany this past weekend. So there's other breeds as well. Um, I was braced with Roger King and has a really nice, really nice Brittany. Um, Okay. So so, you know, and then I've seen short hairs, I've seen a few short hairs, and um, sometimes I think there's um, the people with the short-tailed dogs, I'll say, you know, <laughs> yeah. sort of feel, sort of show up and feel like, boy, my dog's got to beat these times 10, because they all, you know, <laughs> got these fancy-looking tails and stuff, you know, so, yeah. but I, I think the reality, really, of a good judge is that he you know, he or she will will bear out what the better dog is, regardless of what their tail looks like. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, and a lot of people you hear about, you know, is the oh, that dog points at the twelve o'clock tail. Well, that's yeah. great if it's telling time. Right, right, right. You know, right. Hey, I, I like a dog that's telling time. Dog tell time. <laughs> you want your dog to tell time? That's uh, you know, I had a I had a guy years ago. This was now that wanted to buy a setter puppy. And he must have called 20 times. And every time he called me, he would ask me if the, my female that was having the puppies had a perfectly straight 12 o'clock tail. Hmm. You know, and, and, and she had a really nice tail set, really straight and really uh, pretty much 12 o'clock. I mean, you know, so I told him, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, by the end of it, 
I thought to myself, is there anything else you're interested in about the dog? And so I finally said to him, she has a pretty good tail set, but I'm mostly interested in the other end of the dog. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so, what's so, on the front end is most important. Yes, what's between the ears. So, you know, what? what I, I think sometimes people get a little too caught up in what that tail looks like, but, you know, it's a... It's an it's an aesthetic too. So yeah. I like it. I like the way it looks too. Right. I've got some of this stuff. Well, you know, for me selfishly, I like a dog that's telling time because hell, it, it makes for an awesome drawing and or painting. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And you know, why hunt with an ugly dog, right? Right. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, you know, mostly it's what I see in the competitions I go to is the pointers and setters, and so. I, I've seen awesome, awesome dogs in, in many different breeds. So I don't want, you know, I'm never, I'm never talking down about any other breed, of course, but yeah. it's just, you know, when I talk, I'll talk mostly pointers and setters cause that's where I'm coming from. Mostly, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I, there, there's love for all breeds and. Oh yeah. It, I've seen great bird dogs in all breeds, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and, and many, I've, I've seen really nice labs that are, you know, so I, I might give myself a cocker spaniel. I've seen some really nice little cockers, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I'm not even a flushing dog guy, really. But um, it, it's I, cool I really to have one, one, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, yeah. like I say, I, I just love a bird dog, man. Um, yeah. Uh, there's good ones in every breed, but I, I, I can only speak about where I come from, you know, so. Understood, understood. And, and I'm... You know, the best part about this whole thing, man, is, you know, we have this tradition, right? There, there's certain things that are kind of constant in this community. You got your dog and, you know, if you go even further, you, you get addicted to it. You start getting a nice, pretty gun and, right. you, you know, all of those things, right? But what I think is the common denominator is the fact that we all do seriously care about the dog for one reason or another. Okay, we're just a little bit more fanatical, you know, than the next person. And we all think we 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 know just a little bit more than the next person. But, you you know, but the best part about it is when you get out there in the woods, there is no choice but to, you know, salute to an undeniable dog. Right. I mean, absolutely. Tales of it don't matter. Pointer setter, short tail you know, uh, shaggy hair, you know, and, and I, I've had to catch myself because a lot of my podcasts recently, I went on pointer addiction and all I've been talking to is folks from the pointer center world. <laughs> right, right, yep, yep. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but... You know, I always tell people the best dog is the whatever dog makes you have, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I see the, the one dog owner and I don't, I don't ever want to alienate them because... That's not who I am anymore. Right, right, right. So, and that doesn't mean I'm better than anyone. It just means I'm doing something different, right? Right. So, um, and, and not necessarily different, but just maybe in a different way. Like I'm looking for a winning trial dog, and the, right. you know, I'm looking for an exceptional dog to breed. To, mm-hmm. You know, and and I'm and I'm try, I'm trying to do that thoughtfully, right? So. So I'm go- I'm ticking through quite a few dogs to find that one that I feel is, is good enough to breed and stuff like that. Right. And that's that's a lot different from somebody who just wants 
one gun dog and that's all they can keep because they work and they're busy and you know all the other parts of life that we all deal with so um i, I totally respect that one gun dog owner you know and, mm-hmm. and i i and that's the best dog for them and it's yeah. the best dog in the world and i think that's perfect you right. know what i mean right Absolutely. so i don't i don't ever want to come across as like you know I'm some elitist, you know, um, or a dog person or uh, I'm, I learn from everybody I come across, like I said, and mm-hmm. I appreciate everybody in the community, especially pe- even people without a dog, but especially the one dog owner, because, you know, th- I hope those are the people that buy, even buy a puppy from me someday, maybe, Absolutely. or maybe even if they don't buy a pup, like I, I have a, a guy I met at Pheasant Fest, and he was talking about uh, buying a setter pup. And I said, hey, if you get a setter pup, bring it over, and we'll work it on some birds, you know. Right. And I, I don't care if it's from me or somebody else, you know. Um, I tell it. people all the time, Jerry Coulter at Northwoods Bird Dogs breeds some of the best setters in the country. Mm-hmm. Be- mm-hmm. Because it's the truth. Because it's the truth, and he lives twenty miles away from me. You know, I'm I, I'm not trying to sell a bird dog to somebody. You know, and, and so he, even though I breed them, so I, I I think it's I'm trying to just you know I think the community has uh, good people in all over whether they have one gun dog or you know whether they're bre- whether they're breeding setters or pointers or whatever. So right, absolutely. I mean, I really think you hit the nail on the head, man. It's about it's about the love of the dog. Doesn't matter how many you got, you know. Just, yep. just bring them over. And and before we wrap up, I, I've always said, and I still want to reiterate, that is the thing that I love the most about this community is the fact that, it, despite anything going on in the news, anything going on in the world day to day, I can get on the phone with anybody. I don't know you. But yet we have a conversation about bird dogs. We've got memories. We've got training tips. Yes. We've got all of this stuff. Yes. And it's just like, hey, yep. come on, come on up here. You 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 find a way to get up here. You find a way to get down here, and let's get yep. the dogs on birds. Let's look. Maybe you can teach me something. Maybe I can teach you something. I'm sure of it. You know, it. it I I'm mean, sure it, that's Absolutely. the that's the best part about it. Yes. Yep, we're going bird hunting, man. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we're going bird hunting, and it is on the podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That, that is, that's, that, but you're right. That's, you know, the, I'm glad to be here talking to you, and um, it kind of, you know, it kind of, I feel like it partly kind of grew out of me saying to you, hey, come up and go grouse hunting. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> but that's what it's all about. You know, for me, like I said, I, I want, I, I want more and more uh, people to, to, to share the experience with. You know, yes, sir. Share the adventure with. So. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, we will do that. There's going to be a lot more. Um, you know, you're going to hear from me a ton. So, Paul, like, let the listeners know where to find you. I want folks to go to your page and watch the, the videos that you have. I watch them all the time. Where are okay. folks going to find you? Yeah, so you know we got we have an Instagram account, all the fork English setters, and then we do have a website. Um, I try to put, you know, I try to update the photos on there enough so it's, you know, there's occasionally some new stuff on there, and I do, um, I do have a blog I write about. It's kind of the, you know, training a little bit. Mm-hmm. Probably, probably some of my uh, strong opinions about bird dogs. Hey, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's our website, um, w, you know, all the forkinglesssetters.com. So um, you can check that out. And we just, I think, Katie helped me uh, start a Facebook page just okay. recently so we could just link. You know, I basically just link with our Instagram. So, um, so yeah, you can find us on there and send us an email or, you know, my I think my phone number is even on the probably uh on the facebook page or whatever so give me a call um like i say you know you don't have to buy a dog from me or buy a puppy from me sometimes i think people get the idea that well i don't know about that guy i don't you know i'm not gonna buy a setter puppy well that's okay that's fine um, yeah. ask, ask me a, you know i tell, tell people ask me a training question i mean i'm not an expert but you know i'd love to or come over to my house and Put your puppy on the bow rail. I don't care if it's a you know a short hair or a whatever you got. You know, mm-hmm. it's, you know, I'll I'll work dogs with anybody. I just love the experience of it. So you know, mm-hmm. I tell people I got a loft full of pigeons. I got you know, come over and work dogs. So um, anybody that or if you're looking for a setter pup or, or a pointer pup or any kind of pup and I don't have it, I'll I'll you know I know a few people too. So yeah, um, I just want to be open, you know, to the community and say. You know, don't feel like you have to contact me only because you want a setter puppy or something. You know? Right. I just love to talk to bird dog people, no matter what. So, well, you feel free. Anybody can feel free to get a hold of us. Absolutely. Well, you you definitely have a friend in me, and you know, anytime you've got a litter announcement too, man, let me know. I post it. Like, okay, you know, okay. You I, know, I, I, I want folks to go to you now. <laughs> Okay. You know, we, we have about one litter per year, maybe. So we're, you know, I, I'm not putting myself out there as producing a whole bunch of puppies. And to mm-hmm. tell you the truth, we probably are going to keep, you know, we're breeding to, for ourselves as well. Right. right. We, we don't breed unless we want to keep, we kept two, the two females from the last litter. We kept we kept them so okay you know um and the next litter we probably have a good portion of it spoken for so um but you know we'll definitely let you know and um I'll, i'm sure we'll put something on our website when we have another litter because usually there's a puppy or two you know that hasn't been placed um, depending on the size of the litter and stuff but again it's not you know i my wife and I both have full-time jobs. I'm a conservationist and she's a hydrographic surveyor for the Army Corps of Engineers, you know, so nice. we're not, we're, yeah, we're not selling puppies to make money. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're, that's not really the, we're not in business for it that way right now. But um, hopefully I'll, you know, I figure it'll hopefully become my second career eventually. So, um, okay. but you know, um, it's, it's not, we don't have a lot of puppies, um, but I'll definitely, definitely, uh, let people know when we do. Okay. All right. Well, you know, Paul, is there anything you want to leave with the listeners before we wrap it on up? I, you know, I don't know. Just to listen to your podcast more, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, I've been enjoying, but really, I mean, to be serious about it, that's part of the community, right? Like mm-hmm. you're part of the community, you're part of the community. And, um, like Nick Larson mm-hmm. with Project Upland is mm-hmm. a big part of the community. And I'm just happy to know you guys. And, um, I think people should try and reach out to, you know, if they want to get into it, if they want to go upland hunting. Like I tell people all the time, give me a call and I'll take you bird hunting. Right. Um, I don't, I don't care if you have a dog or not, I'll let you borrow my gun. Um, 
I don't, I won't blindfold you to take you to my spot. You yeah. know? Yeah. Um, I understand. All that, you know what I, you know what I mean? That's what I would tell people. Don't, don't let any, you know, there's people that, to reach out to that will take you, um, that would be glad to take you hunting. And, um, so find a bird dog club. Mm-hmm. What are, you know, what, um, find somebody with a bird dog and say, Hey, will you take me hunting? Um, you know, I, maybe if, you know, one person hears your podcast and says, yeah, well, I, I can do that. I know a guy that has a dog and, you know, he'd probably take me hunting. Ask him, you know, yeah. um, get out there and do it. It's I well, just like you said earlier, I think one of the biggest things about a lot of the people we've met are that they're all this way, mm-hmm. right? They, they really are. They're like, hey, come hunting with me. Um, mm-hmm. I've had people invite me many, many times. So. Um, that's what I would say to people. If you want to get into it, don't, don't be, uh, held back. Don't be daunted by, you know, um, seems like it's hard to get into it first, but, um, the community is here. It's well, it's a really welcoming group of people for the most part. So, uh, find a bird dog club, find a person that knows about it and get into it. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, guys, you know, if, if you didn't hear it, from Mr. Paul Cook himself, you're hearing it from me. Please go follow um, Alderfork English Setters on Instagram, Facebook. Go to the website. Contact them. Um, you know, that's what this community is about, guys. So I hope y'all enjoyed it. I know y'all enjoyed it. And this is another episode of the Gundog Notebook Podcast. We will see y'all next week. All right, guys. Wasn't that a good episode? That was a dope episode. All right. Um, Again, I want to thank everybody that I'm collaborating with, affiliated with, sponsored by. um, You know, all my friends and support systems, my wife, everybody that's here on the podcast. um, Project Upland, Northwoods Collective, Morning Thunder, Endless Migration, that whole gamut of folks, Nick Larson, AJ DeRosa, Chet Hervey, Will Sensing, all these folks that are really, really, really doing a phenomenal job in, in, in pushing the Upland industry and, and setting the bar, you know, so much higher and really open it up to new hunters. Um, so I want to say thank you to Project Upland again, but also I want to say thank you to Project Upland for a uh, little special uh, surprise. I will be visiting the Yukonuba Pet Health Nutrition Center up in Ohio very, very, very soon. I'm not going to give you the dates yet, but it's coming very soon. Um, I'm going up there to do some Q&A, not me on the panel, but, you know, to listen to it, um, meet the team at Yukonuba and, uh, you know, open up some more doors, some more opportunities and things like that. So stay tuned for that. Um, Dakota 283 Kennels, Greg Cronkite, I want to thank you again for the invite of invite. Um, in December, I will be there. Lion Country Supply, Orvis, um, you know, all the folks that, you know, really got my back and really support me. Um, and again, just a special shout out to Paul Cook, man. He, he really, I think he said he listened to, to the Neil Carter episode like three times. So anywho. That is what I have in mind, all right? That's what I got in store. So, don't want to hold you too much time. I don't want to hold too much of your time. 
Um, I really hope you guys enjoyed this episode, and I'm looking forward to seeing you guys um, on another episode. What we have up next, oh, I can't tell y'all. I don't want to do it, but it's good. It's really good. I've already recorded it. Anyway, let me get off of here. See y'all next week.